The following message is brought to you by the Ezra Institute for Contemporary Christianity. To learn more about the Ezra Institute's mission to advance the Lordship of Christ, please visit www.ezrainstitute.ca. John uh, Calvin, who uh, Scott Masson uh, talked about briefly in an earlier session today, who was the uh, perhaps the foremost theologian of the Reformation and certainly the foremost uh, biblical expositor of the Reformation, he said this with respect to uh, the purpose of the law. He says, The law restrains malefactors, it's a great old-fashioned word, and those who are not yet believers. The law is protection of the community from unjust man. The second function of the law is this at least by fear of punishment, to restrain certain men who are untouched by any care for what is just and right, unless compelled by hearing the dire threats of the law. That was what Calvin wrote about the uh, purpose of the second second function of the law in the Institutes. Now you might say, well, what has that got to do with... uh, Canada today? What's that got to do with modern Canada? Well, you actually don't have to go back very far to see right at the, uh, in the, at the heart of the Canadian Parliament the significance of both tables of the law of God uh, to public uh, policy in this country and the question of crime and punishment. I want to cite to you the, some words from a debate over the Lord's Day Bill in the Canadian Senate on July 9th, 1906, and this is a Liberal Senator, James McMullen of North Wellington, Ontario. This is what he said to the Senate in a discussion about the Lord's Day Act here in Canada, 1906. We must not forget that we claim to be a Christian nation. We are a Christian professing nation, at least, and as such, we should respect the laws of God. We generally make our laws in accordance with the provisions of God's law. His law says thou shalt not kill, and our law says that the man who sheds man's blood, by man shall his blood be shed. God's law says thou shalt not bear false witness against thy neighbour, and our law says that a man who is guilty of perjury is liable to be punished and imprisoned for a violation of the law. We confirm all these commandments by legislation. Why do we not confirm that commandment which says, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy? We are responsible to a higher authority. The responsibility is that we should recognize God's law that is established and published in his own word. End quote. Now can you imagine a statement like that in uh, contemporary Canadian politics, in in the Senate or in the House? This is how seriously the parliamentarians and the Senate took God's law at the time. This was a common conviction that was set out amongst Canadian people that we are accountable both to the first and the second table of the law. That is accountable for the Sabbath day issue is the first table of the law. That is offences against God. And the second table of the law, offences against our fellow men. And they actually believed that there would be significant national consequences for failure to obey God's law in this regard. And this was not a fringe political opinion in the early part of the 20th century. The same series of debates, July 11th, the Liberal Senator William Ross of Halifax said this, Now the individual or the the family 
the community, province, or the dominion which observe the Sabbath day as it should be observed is one that will prosper. And if we are to enter upon the downgrade by setting at defiance the fourth commandment, we shall go down as a nation by doing so. End quote. So here you have our, our senators, our uh, public officials suggesting that disobedience to the first table of, table of God's law, not just the second, has public consequences. This was the impact of the Reformation in, in particular upon uh, Canadian political life and our understanding of the issue of crime and punishment. Summarising the outcome of the debates over the Lord's Day Act, the historian Paul Lavadier writes, he says, and I quote, Sabbatarians implemented some of their theocratic vision of a righteous Canada, but religious fragmentation prevented them from winning a complete victory in the political arena. That I could go on to discuss what happened there. We haven't got time for that. But history does show, they said, that till at least a century ago it was confidently assumed by most Canadians that Canada was a Christian nation and that this was God's providential intention. Thus the Canadian churches viewed themselves as the conscience of the state. Politicians were expected to judge all matters by Judeo-Christian values. Now you can find hostile witnesses to uh, speak of the same thing. For example, the social critic Tom Warner, who is not a Christian. In fact, he's a veteran homosexual rights leader in Ontario. This is what he says about the history of Canadian law in this respect. And I quote, There was a time not so long ago when Judeo-Christian values were indisputably Canadian values, when it was generally and willingly accepted that the role of the state was to promote and protect such values. This tendency was especially true in regard to the reg regulation of public morals. The state enacted and enforced criminal and other laws regarding contraception and abortion, sexual conduct, sexual expression, and family and spousal relationships. The public schools were mandated with indoctrinating children with Judeo-Christian moral values. The state's role was to nurture, strengthen, and resolutely protect marriage and family in accordance with Judeo-Christian beliefs and morality. So this was what uh, was uh, the norm in the Canadian landscape. Those of you who are 18, 19, 20, 21, if you've not had lengthy conversations with grandparents who grew up here, would not recognize uh, this kind of an attitude towards the role of the state. Crimes that now are treated uh, very trivially were treated... So did you know, for example, that uh, rape... I believe it was 1954 that rape ceased to be a capital offense in Canada. Capital crime... Now, a law order will always inculcate values from one worldview or another, and we've already heard from Jeffrey this week about which agency is going to be sovereign. Is it going to be the state, or is God himself, of course, who is not an agency? But who is going to be, are we functionally accountable to God or not? Well, the Lord's Day Act was struck down, as you probably know, in 1985 by the Supreme Court of Canada. I actually remember when the Lord's Day uh, Lords were struck down in the UK. I was just a boy at the time. And then we had, the, of course, the Canadian Charter in 1982. Both were key markers in terms of the, the demise, I think, of a Christian law order and the establishment of a new orthodoxy 
in this country. So how did we shift from one state of affairs in Canada where we went from punishing abortionists, rapists, perjurers, sodomites with criminal sanctions and protecting the Lord's day as liberty for the people under God to now promoting the killing of children, the removal of legal protection for the family, trivialising perjury, redefining marriage, declaring the Sabbath day act unconstitutional. Those are significant changes in a very short space of time. Well, the root cause is theological. It was a theological and religious change, ultimately, that brought those things about. That's why you won't hear a senator speak in these terms anymore. Because that faith has dissipated. You see, at root of biblical faith and life is a cosmic worldview that relates law, justice, restitution and restoration together supremely in the cross of Jesus Christ. Because the, the cross, the gospel, you cannot understand the Christian faith. You cannot understand the gospel without understanding the biblical doctrine of restitution. Christ made restitution for our sin. He took the death penalty in our stead in terms of what we deserve before God. That's why when a theology goes liberal, the first thing it does is jettisons the substitutionary atonement of Christ. Or at least it's one of the first things that it does. Because it is removing from theology the idea of restitution, justice, judgment. And through it, by restitution, our restoration. So we are restored... To fellowship with God through Christ's restitution that he makes with God for sin, for our lawlessness. That is the gospel, by the way. It's not about health, wealth, happiness, uh, nice wife, double garage, you know, think, blab and grab this and so on. That's not the gospel. Gospel ultimately is about the kingship of Christ and his salvation. Now, when those doctrines disappear from the church, when true understandings of the gospel and the law of God vanish from the church, true justice and judgment disappears from the social order. So where hell and judgment fall out of the church's theology, which it has done, just punishments start to fall out of the justice system. And again, another one of the doctrines that's questioned today in the church, in the new liberalism of the church, the emergent church, old liberalism is has buried itself, that's why all their churches are closing. The new liberalism uh, is, re, uh, is simply reviving these old liberal doctrines, denying God's judgment, denying the doctrine of hell, a la Rob Bell and others. Where the law of God diminishes and the meaning of the cross is undermined, restitution, retribution, restoration as the basis of criminal justice start to vanish. And as Bonhoeffer uh, explains in his uh, classic work on discipleship, the cost of discipleship, cheap grace has the consequence of producing expensive law. Because when you have cheap grace in the church, it's, oh, well, you know, God will just forgive everyone, just love everybody. It's all about, it's all grace. You see, actually, you don't know what grace is until you have an appreciation for what the law of God is, do you? How do you know God's been gracious to you if you don't realise you're a violator of his law? You cannot understand grace without an understanding of God's law. Cheap grace in the church has the social consequence of expensive law where you have a costly proliferation of scientific planners, therapists, correctional systems, positivist laws, various techniques 
that are now used to try and justify and save people by another means. Not because they're sinners, that is lawbreakers, whose punishment must fit the crime, but because a person is sick. They are maladjusted to their environment. They can be fixed by manipulation, therapy and technique. And if you listen to people's discourse, when an awful crime is committed, they speak in the language of therapy and sickness today, not in terms of sin and crime, don't they? Oh, that individual is a real sicko. Oh, they're a bit sick. Oh, that's a tragedy. We speak of tragedies and sickness. We don't speak of criminality and culpability. The enforcement of the law then becomes a massive cost because retribution and restitution are not delivered by the courts. Instead, what you get is a pharisaic, legalistic, scientific plan of justification that's offered by man's ingenuity. Without actually the gospel and the law of God, in which men govern themselves in terms of God's law, society steadily becomes lawless and the costs of keeping criminality at bay skyrocket, which we're witnessing in our time. No time to discuss all those figures. If you're interested, I can discuss it with you. But we see this lawlessness proliferating in our culture. Let's take North America for a moment and give you one example. New Orleans, the murder capital of the United States. 300,000 people sees an average of 95 murders per 100,000 residents, only 300,000 residents. Uh, Time magazine reported that Baghdad has a murder rate of 48 per 100,000 residents. That's half of New Orleans. I could go through the Forbes list of the most dangerous cities in North America, and it's horrifying reading. One in every 100 Americans is in prison. I'll let Russell talk about the recidivism. So part of a biblical vision of justice, we've been talking about God's law, we're talking about uh, the, we've talked a bit about the gospel, the kingdom of God, what we're trying to, what we're called to as Christian people. Well, part of that vision must inescapably involve criminal justice. We don't like talking about it. When was the last time you heard a sermon on criminal justice in the church? Nobody wants to touch the subject of penology, of all things. Nothing is likely to offend people more than a discussion of the biblical view of crime and criminality. But part of a biblical view of the social order is the issue of criminality and God's justice with respect to crime and punishment. And the early church continued in the Jewish vein when they held God's law out prophetically as a testimony to men and nations. And even where... Biblical penalties were not applied in the culture in which they dwelt. The church excommunicated. If you actually read Paul's letters carefully, where certain uh, uh, criminal offenders are excommunicated, Paul tells tells, uh, the church to hand them over to Satan. There is a judicial sentence still pronounced by the church, even if it's not going to be pronounced by the civil order. Do we practice church discipline in the church today, seriously? On the whole, today, no, we don't. People say there's a a privacy uh, wall around everyone. And if a pastor tries to exercise church discipline in the situation, most people, not all, but generally, people will move to another church. And pastors are afraid then to exercise discipline because they're concerned about the offering and uh, the, the time of people leaving the church. So they back away from addressing church discipline issues. 
can't have a disciplined culture if we can't discipline the church. Judgment begins at the house of God. You're going to love this session. Origin. The early church father Origen, for example, in maintaining the church's witness in the late 2nd century and 3rd century, in his Contra Salsum, is responding to Salsus' critique of Christianity's relationship to Judaism. The Greeks did not like the Hebraic nature of the Christian faith. And this is what uh, Origen says about the law. He says, if anyone were to study carefully there, that's the Jews, society in their early days when the law was given, he would find that they were men who manifested a shadow of the heavenly life upon earth. If anyone were to apply his mind to an examination of the lawgiver's intention and the society which he founded, and were to compare them with the present conduct of other nations, he would admire none more. Since as far as it is humanly possible, they removed everything not of advantage to mankind and accepted only what is good. Would that they, that's the Jews, had not sinned and broken the law. Otherwise we might have an example of a heavenly city such as even Plato attempted to describe. Although I doubt whether he was as successful as Moses and his successors when they trained an elect nation and a holy people devoted to God by means of doctrines which were free from superstition. How was the view of the early church? And Origen was one of the more Greek-influenced. You read Tertullian, he's even clearer. Now, Scripture makes absolutely clear that God is faithful, God is just, and there is no injustice in God whatsoever. 2 Chronicles 19.7, Romans 9.14. Everything God does is just and true. That's axiomatic in Scripture. There's no injustice with God. You might feel you're a bit more just than God, a bit more clement, a bit more humane. But Scripture says... Everything God does is just and true. God defines justice in terms of his own being. I said in uh, my last session on the contemporary relevance of biblical law that law is a value processing system and God's law is God's value processing system to establish a vision of society that reflects righteousness and justice. And that righteousness and justice is celebrated throughout the Bible. Look at Psalm 1, Psalm 19... Psalm 119, you see this celebration of the law of God. You see Jesus celebrate it and teach it in Matthew chapter 5, verse, uh, Matthew chapter 5 through chapter 7. And there Jesus says very clearly, he says, I've not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill, pleru in the Greek, which means to put into force. Until heaven and earth pass away, not one jot, not one stroke shall pass, till everything is accomplished. And St. Paul defends and affirms the law in uh, Romans 7, 7 through 14, and he puts it to use against the lawless in 1 Timothy 1, here's the crime and punishment aspect, 1 Timothy 1, 8 through 11, which he tells us is in accordance with the gospel. Let's read his words together, 1 Timothy 1, 8 through 11. This is what he says. Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, understanding this, That the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, for the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine in accordance with the gospel. Of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. So Paul does not say 
Now here's some old ideas that the Hebrews have, which we don't believe anymore because we're into the gospel age. He says, these things are in accordance with the gospel, with the good news, with the lordship of Christ. Anything, anything else, he says, which is contrary to sound doctrine. Now, students of biblical law amongst you will immediately recognise a whole list there of crimes from the Decalogue. Now, one of the things that people will immediately say, Christians in particular, is that God's law is too harsh. We don't like it. It's too harsh. And uh, speaking to us now as Christians, as believers, I think one of the questions we have to ask ourselves when we come to God's law and we try and mine it for, for, to, to develop our understanding of crime and punishment is why would God's law be abhorrent, abhorrent to any Christian who is filled with the Spirit of God? If we find God's law abhorrent, I do think we need to ask ourselves the question whether it's God who we're offended. I mean, are, are, is it actually, is our offence with God? We do need to be very, very careful. People are very free in their criticism of the justice of God, sometimes Christians. And I think we need to ask ourselves the question, if Jesus defended his divinity from the law of Moses, he, he defeated the temptations of Satan through the, by citing the law of Moses. Paul, I've just shown you, Jesus affirms it. He hold, upholds uh, sanctions against assault on parents, as um, Dr. Ventrella pointed out, from Mark 7 and Matthew 15. So we need to be careful if we are saying that the Holy Spirit, who authored the law, the law that Jesus and Paul affirmed, is somehow repugnant to us. What is it that we're offended by? Is it the people who are teaching us about the law? I mean, I might offend you, and that's okay. You could be upset with me. But if you're upset with God, you've got a problem. If I'm uh, mispresenting what the Bible says, you know, I can be corrected. But if it's God you're offended with, we have to be careful. We mustn't mock or belittle or criticise or place our own moral sensibilities above the law of God. What does Paul say about the law in Romans 7? He says, and I quote, the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. For we know that the law is spiritual, for I delight in the law of God in my inner being. And it's clear that Jesus did not allow cultural sensibilities or human traditions to trump his law and its sanctions. You see that in, in Mark 7 and, and, and Matthew 15. Now, let's take a very brief look at how some of our Christian forebears understood uh, this issue. We saw something of the early church, Paul, and then one of the church fathers, Origen. What about uh, our immediate forebears in the... Um, medieval period in the Roman Church, the Reformation, the Puritans, and so forth. Well, the historian Harold Berman shows that many biblical laws regarding crime were embedded in Europe well before the Reformation. They very much made up the, much of the canon law, actually, of the Roman Catholic Church. And actually, if you examine biblical law in comparison to medieval law, it seems incredibly clement. Right? It seems very lenient. It seems very, very light. Typically, crimes punishable by death in the Middle Ages, for example, included treason, homicide, rape, arson, robbery, riot, counterfeiting, forgery, blasphemy, and unnatural sexual behavior. 
Six of those crimes aren't capital in the Bible, by the way. In the early 16th century, Johann von Schwarzenberg, a man who has been called the greatest legislator of the Reformation era and one of the great legal thinkers in the history of Germany, became the principal author of the first modern criminal code. This has played a very significant role in the German Revolution. First codification of criminal law that was enacted about 10 years before Luther denounced the authority of the Roman Catholic uh, papacy. And this is what we read in the historic Bamberg Capital Court Statute. And I quote uh, from uh, Berman now. The first systematic and comprehensive codification in the full sense of that word of a single branch of law, namely the law of crimes punishable by death, 26 in all, ranging from blasphemy and perjury uh, to robbery and murder. Those are found in this, in this Bamberg Capital Court statute. And Berman says, he says, Schwarzenberg and his colleagues did not make up these crimes. Most of them were offences that had been identified, named and punished under the customary law of the Germanic and other peoples of Europe as it had developed during centuries previous. At the same time, he says, one of the most important changes that took place was that high standards of proof were set. So that was there prior to the Reformation. The Reformation uh, brought a sharp focus on law and gospel and uh, an exposition of the law, Martin Bucer, John Calvin, uh, Zwingli in those various city-states, John Knox in Scotland. Uh, John Knox is considered the father of Puritanism. And then when you move on to the Puritans, you actually see that an understanding of law and justice, punishment and restoration was sought that tried to conform itself to the mercy, compassion and justice of God's law. So if you look at the Massachusetts Code of 1648, the example of the Puritans is significant. This is what we read. They say, so soon as God had set up a political government among his people, Israel, he gave them a body of laws for judgment, both in civil and criminal causes. These were brief and fundamental principles, yet with all so full and comprehensive, as out of them clear deductions were to be drawn to all particular cases in future times. So that's how they saw the Decalogue and the case laws. And that meant that they were interested in following biblical law carefully. So whereas tradition, cultural tradition, the cultural perspective had been execution for theft, which greatly distressed Oliver Cromwell, I should add, in England, who had it abolished, theft was not punished by death by the Puritans. They got rid of those cultural assumptions and conformed it to biblical law and the, the requirement of restitution. I can't say any more about the historical issues because of time. The, the foundation then of biblical penology is that the power of the sword, the legitimate power of a limited coercion to restrain evil, is given in scripture to the lawful authority of the civil magistrate. For So those of you who are libertarians amongst us, I'm kind of with you for the most part. But here we do have Romans 13, uh, 1 through 5. And in the Old Testament, it's very clear that the civil magistrate has authority to bear the sword. That is, to deal with the matter of crime and punishment. Now, it's certainly true, and, I, and we must be ready to acknowledge, that when you look at um, biblical penology and the history of uh, biblical penology in the Western world, some of the sanctions for sins deemed crimes do appear harsh in our age. 
But in the cultural milieu of ethical and judicial confusion today, we do have to ask afresh some very important questions. When we think even in the last hundred years of how we've changed our understanding of how to deal with crime, we have to ask, first of all, what is the difference between crime and punishment? We have to ask, which sins are crimes? How do we determine which actions should be deemed criminal? Now, I would argue that without the specific guidance of God's word here, we don't have adequate answers to these questions. Now, our forebears would say we used to appeal to the idea of the law of nations. Many of the reformers would talk about the law of nations, but the law of nations that they were referring to were the nation-states of Europe who were drawn from biblical law. So they were already looking at and were living in the context of a Christian consensus about law and criminality. And you can't really appeal to the law of nations today. In fact, if you want to make an appeal to the law of nations, you have to look to the UN and the Human Rights Code and the International Court of Human Rights. And what they think, uh, and their, their, this desire to establish world court and, and international law, it's certainly it's no good appealing to a general principle of the law of nations in terms of uh, expecting that that will render Christian responses, especially post-Darwin and after what we heard from Dr. Masson today about the very idea of words in their relationship to law. Once you've unhooked biblical law from human legislation, what you see very quickly is that murder of the unborn and acts of what the Bible deems sexual perversion become legislated as human rights. What we witness then when we see a change of penalties, and this is very, very important, when there is a change in penalties for crimes, we're witnessing a change in social values. Changes in the law order in terms of, uh, in terms of which act are deemed criminal also indicates a change in the source of sovereignty. So if you want to grapple with biblical penology um, uh, adequately, and I would encourage you to do so, even if you find it uncomfortable, get Jonathan Burnside's book, God, Justice and Society, to, and, and do something of a, take some time to look at and, and try and understand biblical penology. Another book I'd recommend is John Frame's book, The Doctrine of the Christian Life, and his study of the Decalogue. Because at the foundation of biblical penology is the doctrine of restitution or just recompense, the lex talionis, which means the law of retaliation, or like for like. And so central to a biblical understanding of justice, crime and punishment, is an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth principle of justice. Exodus 21, 24. Now that is not a literal principle, it's an analogical one. It did not mean somebody pokes out your eye, you poke their eye out. It meant that there had to be exact justice and impartiality in the courts. Like for like, punishment had to fit the crime. But how do you know which punishment fits a given crime? And who are you to determine that? I mean, the Muslims think uh, Sharia law re requires that the hands of thieves be chopped off, but the Bible bans mutilation. So which is right? Ha and this is the mushy-mindedness of today's multiculturalists and pluralists is... And there are Sharia tribunals now that have been established in the United Kingdom 
which is, an, which is almost like a parallel system of law now running alongside English law. They say, oh, well, it's still supposed to be subject to the British courts in these matters. Do they, uh, in practice, actually do that? No, when it comes to divorce and so on. How are we going to, to, to determine then, uh, especially in this post-structuralist context, whether the Muslims, whether Sharia law or Christian law is right with respect to how to deal with thieves? These are important questions to ask. The lex talionis, then, is the very essence of the meaning of restitution in the Bible. And God tells us what uh, this principle, how this principle is to be applied. The law of retaliation required exact justice in terms of restitution or recompense. We see this played out in the life of Zacchaeus. Although he went over and above the required restitution, Jesus says salvation has come to this house. Thieves then are to restore what was illegally taken with damages on top. That's where we get the idea of damages, by the way, in the Western legal tradition. And the idea of restitution, not actually to the state, but restitution to the individual who's been robbed. Not having to then press another civil case against the individual. The court's already dealt with it. You're made to pay restitution. Twofold to fivefold, depending on what was stolen. If the thing that was stolen could reproduce or was, could have earned you income in the time, you, you had to make further restitution. Restitution financially was made in biblical law in a variety of cases, negligence or accident, and where the victim of serious crimes was willing to accept appropriate financial compensation as an alternative to perhaps insisting on more severe penalties that could never be applied in the case of murder, however. Numbers 35, 31 through 32 makes that clear. In some, for some crimes, there's corporal punishment. For others, uh, there is... Uh, in, in the cases of capital offences, there may be excommunication from the community, exile, or death. In his work, The Doctrine of the Christian Life, which I've recommended to you, uh, John Frame lists all of the capital offences of the Old Testament, which included murder, incest, bestiality, kidnapping, rape, witchcraft, and a number of others. And he seeks to analyse uh, what the implications are of those for Christians thinking about this issue today. He argues that some of these crimes may have been based on the special holiness of Israel living in the presence of God. He, uh, he, he tries to make the argument not all of these would be enforced by a Christian government. But he does go on to argue that capital punishment is a creational ordinance that hasn't been set aside. Now, we haven't had a chance to talk about this yet, so there'll be a Q&A tomorrow. We can talk about that. But he shows the New Testament in no way sets aside the death penalty in its usage. In fact, Paul... In Acts 25.11, even says, if I've done something worthy of death, I don't refuse to die. So if you can prove that I've committed a capital crime, he says, do so. If not, I appeal to Caesar. Some of you are looking at me like you don't like me too much now. <clears throat> capital punishment. Well, your argument's with scripture, so we can work that through. Furthermore, Frame makes various other qualifying remarks. He says the law of God cannot be applied comprehensively in modern nations where there's no covenanting with God amongst the people and no desire to obey God's standards. This question came up at the end of our last session. When we talk about biblical penology, we're not saying, right, what Christians should be doing is advocating for the execution of all rapists. Although I think that's a pretty good idea personally. Let's, can we delete that from the... Um, 
But that's not the purpose of our seeking to understand biblical law and biblical penology. What we're trying to do is understand God's value processing system. Only a Christian commonwealth would introduce Christian laws. An Islamic uh, country has Islamic laws. We become pagan and humanistic in our thinking. We have pagan laws, increasingly. That may be an overstatement, but we have many pagan laws. Infanticide, which we're not supposed to be committing. Abortion. The androgyny now in our, in our sexual ethics. These are pagan ideas. Five minutes. You can buy some time on this one. <laughs> How much? Twofold? Fourfold? Yeah. <clears throat> for, uh, for also, for a variety of capital offences, the Bible is clear that ransom could be made for somebody's life by making restitution. This is implied in Exodus 21 30, Numbers 35, 31 through 32. The judges uh, could set financial restitution in all manner of cases where the maximum penalty or the exemplary penalty was death. So don't forget, in biblical law as well, what you have cited in much of the case law is exemplary penalties, maximum sentences, the ultimate punishment. But there, were various, there was discretion actually permitted to the judge because all cases are different. So a judge might make an example in a given case, but... The punishments are exemplary. This was the preponderant view of Hebrew scholarship. Robert Alter, one of the leading Hebrew scholars today, he says this. The preponderant view of the Jewish commentators in late antiquity and the Middle Ages is that in each of the cases stipulated here, he's talking about Exodus 21, the intention is for the liable party to pay monetary compensation for the loss incurred. Monetary compensation for such losses was a widespread practice in ancient Near Eastern codes, and as some of the medieval commentators point out, it would have been unfeasible to implement the lex talionis literally with equity, e.g., how could one punish someone who has caused a man a partial loss of eyesight in one eye? So the Bible envisages there some kind of damages. Well, we follow a similar practice. Uh, the Bible requires um, that the roofs of the roof of your house be fenced in biblical law. What was the purpose of that in case law? Well, people had parties on the roof. And uh, you were guilty of criminal negligence if somebody fell off your roof and died if you hadn't fenced your roof. Well, we don't fence our roofs today because they're usually like this. You can't have a party on the roof, generally. But we are required by law to fence our swimming pools and lock the gate. And if a child falls in because we haven't done so, we may be convicted of criminal negligence. So... Uh, there are a whole variety of cases, minimal cases, that illustrate how this can be, uh, these laws can be applied. Not only so, it seems to be the case in biblical law that victims of crimes had a say in how the offender was to be punished. The law of retaliation didn't obligate the victim to press for maximum charges or the ultimate penalty. The 19th century commentator Vines argues, he says, the person receiving... The injury retained always the natural right of remitting the punishment if the other chose to compound the matter by apologies and pecuniary compensations. The law does not command an injured person to avail himself of the right of retaliation without any alternative. It only fixes the punishment to which the author of an injury must submit if he cannot compound matters with the injured party. Such satisfactions, in fact, were so common that Moses found it necessary to restrain the use of them in case of deliberate murder. So you don't have an inflexible wooden system. 
<laughs> John Frame uh, goes on to discuss that issue at great length. I just refer you to his, his book, The Doctrine of the Christian Life, and his discussion in, on pages 200 following. A similar view of the latitude of application of penalties is found in the Jewish scholar David Klinghoffer. He argues that biblical laws of evidence ensured latitude was necessary and that the critical purpose of the sanctions was not simply punishment but teaching. So he says, and I quote, The Bible intended to create a teaching model indicating the severity of the moral offence by attaching to it as a matter of principle, if not practically, the ultimate punishment. So just as you you drive past an area it says... No dumping, maximum fine, $5,000. Usually, if you're caught chucking your Coke can out there, you're not going to be fined $5,000. But the, the idea is to teach you something about the law. The purpose of the lex talionis, or principle of just restitution and recompense, is God-centered, then not man-centered. Just punishments have, that have as their ultimate goal God's kingdom purpose and the restoration of his order in the world. So there is a theological or eschatological character to crime and punishment in the Bible because God has a future, an ordained future in mind when he deals with criminality. He's concerned with his purposes for the future. God's law aims at making impossible the development of a professional criminal class, which is what we have today. God's law requires that such a class be eliminated, that there would be no such class operating in his, uh, his uh, Hebrew family. Since the punishment of criminality indicates God's reign over all things, crime and punishment should actually be a critical issue for Christians today. So let me summarize in this way. God establishes his laws of justice that include punishment to restore his order in several ways. Number one, the offender is to receive a just penalty that corresponds to the criminal act. We get an understanding of what just penalties look like by reference to his word, not our imagination. Otherwise, we swing from extreme cruelty, which has been seen in the Western European codes and especially in Eastern codes, to extreme leniency. Both are unjust. Second, punishment purges evil from amongst the people rather than having corporate guilt rest on a people for ignoring it. And God is concerned with that in Scripture. That when murderers are not sought out and punished, there is a collective guilt on that community for not pursuing justice, biblically. Third, punishment functions as a deterrent to criminality with impunity. Fourth, punishment functions as a kind of civil atonement in that by affecting justice, it helps reconcile the offender to society, resulting in God's healing for a social order. So when somebody pays their dues and restitution takes place, there is social healing, there is genuine restoration. Fifth, punishment involves recompense to the offended, not simply fines to enrich the state, so that the justice is for victims of crime. The victims actually receive justice. Now, in this introduction that I've given you today, I don't pretend to have even begun to sort through all the challenges. A great deal of work has to be done in interpreting God's word carefully. A great deal of exegetical work needs to be done. It takes discipline, it takes diligence, but our forebears did it. The alternative, in the end, to the Christian law order is to look for the technical reconditioning of society by the state. 
You know, the very idea of the penitentiary is a humanistic idea emerging from the Enlightenment. Penitentiary, where you were made penitent. And the ideal was that you were put in like a monk's cloister where, you were, where you, the negative environment that made you a criminal was removed and then you can be steadily reprogrammed by therapy, but it doesn't work. Let me close with one shocking illustration for you that will take me 30 seconds. I'm just going to give Russell a tenner. Ten bucks for allowing me to say this. Okay. Um, tax receipt. Thank you. Tax receipt. Good. It, don't forget what the Bible is saying about crime and punishment is that the the sanction, the penalty, illustrates the value of the precept. That's the function of penalties in law. Okay. You can't separate moral precept. In, in effect, law is not law unless you have precept and penalty together. It's just advice. It's counsel. Law is the, conceptually, is the coming together of precept and sanction. And the uh, value, that is the ethical or social weight of a precept, is comprehended by the severity of the sanction. So if you were to get the death penalty for jaywalking in Canada, most of us would say that is, whilst people shouldn't jaywalk, right, that's highly dangerous, it should be against the law. If there was the death penalty applied to it, you say, what, what kind of a law order is this? If it was a $50 fine for rape, you would say, this is utterly unjust. Even if both laws were on the statute books, that rape was criminal and jaywalking was an offence, the principle may be moral, but if the punishment doesn't fit the crime, you'd say that's, that's an unjust legal structure. It's a tyrannical order. Now that's the only way we can understand whether a law is just or unjust. Whether laws are tyrannical or not. Whether even differentiating crime from punishment. You see, it comes to a point where actually punishment itself, whether it's too lax or too harsh, becomes criminal in its perversion of justice. The one illustration I wanted to close with... This will shock you. Despite Canadian pride in our peacefulness, according to the UN International Comparisons, Canada has a police-reported criminal incidence rate among the highest in the world. Double that of the United States. Double. Failure to punish incorrigible violent offenders and murderers with the biblically required death penalty in the name of rehabilitation and humaneness has led to rampant evil. In the, listen to this. In the 33-year period... From 1975 to 2008, some 508 serious violent offenders were released from Canadian prisons after social and psychological rehabilitation and being deemed no longer a danger to society. 508. 31-year period. 33-year period. Those 508 convicted felons proceeded to murder 557 innocent Canadians after their release into society. If you want an illustration of recidivism, that's it. So we have a choice between the state's reconditioning of the individual in the name of enlightenment rationalism or reapproaching as God's people what God's law has to teach us about values in our culture and how crime and punishment reflects God's values. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this message brought to you by the Ezra Institute for Contemporary Christianity. Please feel free to share it with friends, but do not charge for or alter the material in any way without the express written consent of the EICC. Thank you.